Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We are loaded up today. A lot going on in America. A lot going on in Washington. A lot going on in Trump world. We'll try to explain it to you. Uh, we're going to talk to Byron York today. He has been tracking the Susan Rice thing and uh, related issues like uh, like no one with his usual insight. And uh, what do they call it? Footpad? What is it? What is it? Uh, footpad journalism? No, it's, you know. What I'm Shoe leather. About. Shoe leather. <laughs> footpad. I've been watching too many of those insert commercials, insole commercials. Right. Shoe leather journalism. Uh, and then we'll talk to Tom Jocelyn. He's our go-to guy in terrorism. Uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's affiliated with them, and he knows a ton. Then, of course, uh, your favorite, Steve Wynn. Uh, we'll talk to Steve about uh, when he uh, lost the romance uh, or the interest, the attraction with uh, Barack Obama. All right, let's get started uh, with uh, Byron York. Byron is the chief political correspondent of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Uh, oh, man, we don't need to think about things to talk about. Holy smokes. Can we start with Susan Rice? Holy smokes. Yeah, we can start with Susan Rice. I think... Um what was interesting is uh, on Tuesday, the world got a chance to hear from Susan Rice um, after the Bloomberg report had identified her as the person who was seeking to unmask Trump persons. You know, I've been I've been struggling in my writing to describe, you know, we're talking about Trump or Trump aides or associates. I'm thinking about Trump world people, Trump persons, something. We'll call them Trump persons. Um, so she is you know, sort of revealed to be a person who was involved in this. She comes on uh, Andrea Mitchell's show on MSNBC, and she says, well, yes, there is something called incidental collection, and yes, there's something called unmasking, and yes, on occasions I did it, but as far as this particular case is concerned, I have no idea. I don't know what anybody's talking about. So really didn't move the ball very far forward. Now, did she deny that uh, this constitute a denial of what she had said earlier on TV on PBS? Uh, well, she actually hired some PR people who sent out uh, notes saying that actually her PBS con- uh, comments were taken out of context, and she was actually referring when she said, "I know nothing about this." She was referring to sort of the larger uh, subject of what Devin Nunes had had reported, and I believe that was on the very day Devin Nunes had made this public. Um, but I mean, the, the fact is she's still saying, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're talking about. So I, I'm not sure that it's her, her line uh, on Andrea Mitchell was very different from her line on PBS. Well, what's wrong with this? I mean, do we, what do we know that she did that she's not uh, agreeing to admitting to? Well, we don't know anything in a legal sense. Okay. Uh, we have the report from Eli Lake and Bloomberg, who I think has done good work on this, um, saying that she was the one who had requested um, lots of unmasking of people in this case, and that we have what Devin Nunes has said, in which there were he said there were dozens of examples of unmasking. And, and one thing that's really critical in my mind, and we don't know enough about yet, is um, what's called incidental collection, that is a wiretap that picks up your conversation, um, can, involving uh, what's called a U.S. person, can be a couple of things. It could be two foreigners talking with each other, talking about Donald Trump. 
And so the name Trump would come up in a transcript or a report of that conversation. But Trump wasn't a party to that conversation. He wasn't wiretapped in that conversation. Uh, So that's one thing. And I I view that as much less serious. Um, But then then there are the conversations to which some Trump person was actually a party, uh, such as the Michael Flynn conversation, when Michael Flynn is talking with the Russian ambassador. And it's, it's bugged and transcribed and leaked so uh, that's pretty serious now is she not supposed to be doing this i read a column by andy mccarthy i'm sure you read it it's pointing yeah. out that she's the national security advisor to the president that's staff right that's personal staff to the president she's not the head of nsa or nsc she's not the head of nsa and she's i think one of andy's key points was that she's not an investigator Right. The FBI investigates this stuff domestically. Okay. The CIA investigates this stuff uh, internationally. And so what's her role? And, and yes. In that, if you look at it that way, it's hard to find a non-political role. Okay. Now, okay. I, here's a theory. Uh, we know that uh, Flynn talked about sanctions with the Russian ambassador. We know that the Obama administration had imposed some sanctions in uh, December in response to Russian attempts to, to influence the election. Um, it's entirely possible the Obama administration wanted to find out what the Trump people were saying with the Russians about sanctions. Now, it was entirely proper for the incoming national security advisor during the transition to be talking about sanctions with the Russians. I mean, he was about to come into power, sure. and uh, the policy of the new administration might be different. Um, but you could imagine the Obama administration being very curious about uh, what the next administration is thinking. And uh, if there were wiretaps that picked up that thinking, in this case they did, uh, gosh, that would be interesting. And then they'll just leak them to the press in an effort to, to influence the whole political debate. So uh, we know it happened once. What we don't know is whether it happened more. Do you think, uh, <clears throat> tell us what, uh, if she does testify uh, before committee, uh, what what would constitute something illegal? Uh, just unmasking, I take it, is not correct, but sharing that with other people is, or sharing it with the wrong people, or sharing it with the press? Yeah, sharing it with the wrong people would be uh, definitely um, bad. And, and then it, it's entirely possible that it's not illegal for her to do this, but the question is, did she read or view a transcript or report of an intercepted communication in which Donald Trump or his aides or his associates were a party? I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Was Trump yeah, inspired. yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, that's a really key question, and she would not answer it on Andrea Mitchell. And my guess is she won't answer it. <laughs> Uh, until she's forced to answer it. And even then, you know, who knows if it'll be true. Will she be called? Yeah, I think she'll, she probably she'll will, called. yeah. Yeah. All right, we're talking to Byron York, chief political correspondent of the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Um, two other things, I mean, amazing to me, and I've been around a long time, been around this town a long time. Uh, one is uh, Democrats and some of the media stand up and say, you're just looking for an excuse to take your eye off the ball, and the ball is collusion uh, yeah. in the election. Um, 
And the response is, no, this could be pretty serious too, or this could be pretty serious. And by the way, you've been looking at this collusion now here for a year, and you still haven't got anything of substance. Do I have this right? You do have it right. Um, I'm always careful to say that we have no public evidence of uh, collusion. And we've had people who were privy to classified information saying they don't have evidence of collusion. We have Adam Schiff, the Democrat uh, on the House Intelligence Committee, who certainly has an interest in um, talking up this uh, affair, saying that there's circumstantial evidence of collusion plus evidence of deception. I guess that could, like the Michael Flynn um, issue, could be could be that. Um, so we just don't have a lot. And okay. unclear what new evidence there is to get. I mean, there will there will not be any more phone calls from October 2016. There's they're not happening anymore. There's this finite set of evidence, and the FBI we know from James Comey has been investigating since July. So um, okay, who knows? There's this other odd thing um, that I know you've noticed. I did my own little research project yesterday. I turned on in the morning, I turned on Fox, and they were talking about Susan Rice. I turned on ABC, CBS, and NBC at the seven hour when they go on with their big morning shows. No mention, at least not in the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then went to CNN and saw something I'd never seen before. Don't look over there. That is a false story. <laughs> CNN was saying, and they were playing clips from, I think it was Don Lemon the night before, but they were saying, and, and the banner across the bottom, the crawl and everything was, uh, is Fox peddling false story about Susan Rice? Has it ever gotten to this point before? I haven't seen it before. I was actually kind of dumbfounded by that. I yeah. was astonished. I saw, the, too. I saw the Don Lemon clip, and I think Chris Cuomo said basically the same thing the next morning. And CNN had this reflexive instinct to shoot down this story before even reporting the story. And I, I, I can't explain it, actually. I mean, look, I've been, I, I, I listen to CNN some in the car, so I've heard 30-minute you know, chunks of them occasionally. Um, my feeling is yeah. that they've been quite negative and sometimes snarky about uh, the Trump administration generally. But uh, this was really astonishing. And, and by the way, other news organizations that, that felt the need to jump to uh, Susan Rice's defense actually did at least report the story. Uh, yeah, so yeah. CNN's I, I, posture was very, very odd. Very odd. Boy, I mean, there just seems to be at war. Okay, now, two other things. I'm in North Carolina. I've been here for a while. I'm going to stay here through Easter. And do you know what? People here are not interested. Do you, did you know that? Would you guess that? They're I'm not, stunned. Yeah. I'm stunned. They're wondering about jobs and the economy and the wall and immigration. Shocker here, yeah. yes. And occasionally I hear something about that guy in North Korea. But is the, is the media making the same mistake it made in the election, being so obsessed with this that it's missing what the country's talking about? I mean, I I find it irresistible to talk about this, um, and you must find it close to irresistible to write about this. But, I mean, but is this is this what the country cares about? I have a sense no. Yes, you know, we did not start this conversation with, hey, Byron, what do you think about jobs? No, I didn't. I didn't. I was going to close I, you know, with... It's, it's clearly 
clearly the the press has just become consumed with this, either reporting it or knocking it down in the case of CNN and Susan Rice. Um, but it is not the voters' first concern. And, I, and I've been writing about this, actually. Yes, you have. The, 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 the person who has to remember this is Donald Trump. And That's right. there are a million people who want to knock him off his game yeah. uh, in every single imaginable way. Early. And Throw him off balance early these, so he never recovers oh, sure. it. Right. And it's one of these things that if you're not talking about jobs and wages, and we should be talking about wages a lot because, remember, the, the jobless rate has gone from 10% in, uh, I think it was October of 2009, to 4.7% today. So that is a, a huge improvement after the economic collapse. But people are making less than they made a decade ago. Yes, sir. And so if they if they have a job, they're not happy with what they're being paid, and they don't feel there aren't enough jobs so that they'd have an option to go get one that pays better. So these are the things that th- – this is why Donald Trump was elected. And um, it's why I thought uh, uh, pursuing Obamacare so quickly – uh, it was not entirely consistent with I his agree. promises to provide more jobs at higher wages. I agree. Um, I agree. Obviously, an infrastructure uh, thing would have would have uh, would have done that, and also would have would have um, sort of solidified his reputation as a different kind of Republican because it would irritate a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh, certainly, a tax package uh, is. Is they would be they would be guilty of malpractice if they did not promote a tax package as a jobs and wages get the economy going package. So when they're not doing that, they're not on the right thing. And uh, obviously, this whole the Democrats want them to be talking about Michael Flynn forever and ever and ever. Yeah, and sure. You have to assign people to do that. They have to do that. Of course. Because, you know, these really are members of Congress. These really are committees, and these really are subpoenas. But um, but for the president himself, jobs and wages. Yeah, and that's the basis on which his numbers will come up and then the midterms will be decided and other things, right? The state of the country. Maybe something like knocking out Kim Jong-un un, or you know something uh, because that North Korea thing does seem to be looming and I know it's very much on the president's mind. And that obviously would, uh, <clears throat> would have an impression on the American people and they'd, well, they'd, yes. they'd be roused on that. Safety is always part of it. But when yeah. I, you know, I went to a bunch of Trump rallies and when you would ask people and sometimes Trump, Trump's speech would go on for a long time and wander all over the lot. But people came away with fairly clear ideas. And I would say, you know, now, so what did Trump say? I mean, what you, what's he going to do? Right. And he would they would tell me it was always really it was like bullet points. I'd say he's going to bring our jobs back. He's going to build a wall. and He's mm-hmm. going to kick the hell out of ISIS. Okay. Um, and okay. there you go. And you can put North Korea into the sort of national security safety basket as ISIS as well. And that's what they expect of him. A couple of things. He he is working hard, right? I mean, he seems to be working all the time. There's a lot of emphasis, interesting, on sort of meeting with people, labor leaders, union leaders. And maybe he's making some, some stealing some people from the Democrats there. But there's a lot of listening going on, it seems to me, which is good. And a lot of rolling up the sleeves and, and working. And he's got, Lord knows, this week, you know, you got 
Uh, you had uh, Sisi from Egypt. Uh, you got uh, uh, President Jordan, and you've got China coming in on the weekend uh, down, down to. Florida. Is there anything else big happening this week? I, I'm just. I'm not going to pursue this too far, but if go you ahead. don't know that the Masters is happening this week. Oh, for God's sakes. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right, and I do need to digress uh, because a friend of mine said, I, I understand, Bill, that you occasionally like to wager on college football. I said, yeah, I occasionally do, just for fun. He said, well, you need to pick 20 guys in the Masters, 10 sort of near the top, 5 to 1, 7 to 1, and then 10 in the 500 to 1. Fred Couples area of life and bet on those and you bet 20 bucks to 501 odds well right now now you've it? distracted me so now follow well, up because I've lost my well, thread go ahead come well, on the first tee off is about Thursday you know Thursday morning at what yeah. seven or something okay. so you know there you jo- go Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson is that right yeah, Jordan Spieth and Dustin Johnson. Although, you know, the, the guy who won last year is a guy named Danny Willett, who I had never yep. heard of before. Yep. And so you've got to remember these things These things happen sometime. And I was looking at the photo from the Masters Champions Dinner um, uh, Tuesday night. And, you know, there, there are two or three guys who, like, won that and never won anything else. So, And then there's Jack Nicklaus. So you never can... You never can tell. That's why betting is difficult. If you if if you've won the Masters, you can go back and play any time. Correct. Until age sixty five. Um, oh, so Nicholas, you can, yeah, can't play anymore. He, yeah, he's, he doesn't. Well, they've they've uh, extended the course, beginning with Tiger's appearance in two thousand in nineteen ninety seven, and this is the twentieth anniversary of that year. He just ran away from the field. Right. Um, they have extended the course so long that. The older players just can't get to the hole. It's a par four, and they can't get on the okay. green in two. And, and these right. are professional golfers who've won the Masters. They don't want to go out and embarrass themselves. Right. Chris, are you wondering what we're doing? No, this is great. This is okay. Just, fine, uh, fine. Let's yeah, go. Right. Let's this go back. Great. I'd prefer but, to talk about this. All right, let me do this. <laughs> uh, well, did you see your 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 uh, not your 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 Alabama? But did you see the defeat of the Connecticut women's team by Mississippi State? I did not. Yeah, I and then not, South actually. Carolina women. We watched. See, I watched an entire these. women's game. I've never seen an entire women's game before, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, okay. <laughs> let's actually, go. There was, there was a women's golf tournament that was in the news, but let's no, just no. stop right there and go back to our. Let's go back to Obamacare. They're talking okay. about a revisit here. Uh, you know, yeah. Trump Care 2.0 now. I don't know anything about the details, and Paul Ryan says he doesn't either. We don't have text yet. Presumably he knows something. But they can't even broach this, bring this up in public, unless they have agreement ahead of time, correct? They can't have another yeah, public. This is, no, you mean blow it up again? No, yeah, they, they can't, they can't do, do that. That. Right. that would be a mistake. Um, look, I think what happened is, I think Trump actually had an upper hand over the, the House Republicans in this. Because when they messed up, um, Trump said, okay, that's it. I'm going to tax reform. And they were, wait a minute. We've spent seven years yelling about this. I mean, we cannot just, you know, try a, try a bill really quickly, not get there, and then say, okay, that's it. Sorry, no more, no more repeal of Obamacare. So they have to do something. I mean, they're locked in. Um, so, you know, whether that meant... Going back to the drawing board, 
starting afresh or whether it meant trying to fix the bill that they had. Um, I don't know. I do, I, I do know that the, the um, Freedom Caucus guys had been very smart in, um, in their working conservative media. Um, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan came and, and spoke to us uh, and some of the editorial people at the Washington Examiner. I'm sure they've gone and talked to everybody else. Uh, and they presented themselves as just the soul of reason. Yeah, you know, there are these, sure. There are these sure. 12 Obamacare mandates, and, and, and they would have only repealed two of them. And all we asked is that they repeal two more. I mean, and then we could get there. And so they presented themselves as uh, having made very, very reasonable demands. And then, of course, the, the moderates are, are angry at them and accuse the, the Freedom Caucus guys of moving the goalposts every time. So much so that they're apparently not even talking to each other. So there are these divisions inside the Republican caucus conference that are not going to go away just because they bring this bill up again. And I thought it was remarkable that Paul Ryan uh, was saying that they were talking again and they were having good talks and it was, they were at the conceptual stage. And I thought, seven years, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, and you had this bill that was in legislative language that, you know, you were, you were going to try to vote on just a week or so ago. And now you're at the conceptual stage. So it sounds kind of like back to the drawing board to me. But, but I guess what's driving this, at least I heard this from someone in the White House, is they got to have some clarity on this in order to go ahead with the tax package. Yeah, that's always been this situation. Is that true? I mean, Goldberg. Yeah. Well, yeah, apparently what it does is it has to do with the baseline of, of tax receipts. And um, if if you're let's see how, how to explain it um, the you know Obamacare was basically a bunch of taxes and if so if you repeal all of these taxes um, then you start out with a different baseline of expected receipts for your tax reform so you can cut more and still conceivably get to a balanced budget. Uh, the difference is about a trillion dollars, which is, even in Washington, is a lot of money, as they say. And so Ryan always wanted to go with tax reform first. Um, but uh, um, it created the situation where, excuse me, I always want to go with Obamacare first, but it, it created the situation in which Obamacare could only be done by reconciliation because right, right, of the filibuster right, right, right. in the Senate, and they had to go had to do Obamacare in three parts, and then it all had you know the first part was the bill they were going to pass, and then Tom Price was going to do this stuff at HHS on his own authority, and then there was going to be another bill that somehow magically would just pass in the Senate, um, even though it couldn't be passed through reconciliation, and then they could do tax reform. There's just this Rube Goldberg structure that, um, you know, just it, it fell apart. And uh, so if, if they tried again, it, it could fall apart again. Okay. But I, I don't know. Leave yeah. with one bigger question. Oh, please. Yeah, sure. Well, the bigger question is, how many Republicans really want to repeal Obamacare? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Not as many as you'd think from the noise, right? 
I think that's probably the case. That's, I mean, that's all I'm getting at is that uh, you got 237 Republicans in the House. How many of them really want to repeal Obamacare if, it, if they felt like they wouldn't lose in their districts because, of, you know, or get primaried because of it? How many of them? I don't know. Yeah, uh, historic question. How many Democrats wanted to lead with this back when? Uh, the only th- note of praise I'll give for Chuck Schumer, he said it was a mistake. It was a mistake, you know, to start with Obamacare should have done, you know, the jobs and economy. So. Yeah, well, they did it, and um, they and passed they it, it because if you if you remember, um, they had sixty votes in the Senate for a period of one hundred and thirty four days. That was yep. it. Yep. That was the time between the you know Teddy Kennedy had died. They're putting him down at fifty nine. Massachusetts changed its rules, its law, to put Paul Kirk in. He was sworn in, and between the time that Paul Kirk was sworn in and the time that Scott Brown won that seat was 134 days, and that was the small window they had to pass this huge piece of legislation, and they did it. I'm with you. Look, I think you should focus on jobs when your latest columns and, um, you know, the tax reform, and I, I... uh, it's partly because I don't comprehend this stuff. I just don't. don't ma- I can't master all this healthcare stuff. But I just mm-hmm. think I, I think you're 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 right. I don't think there's all that much gut enthusiasm for this. It's a big, complicated mess. And you know, I'm not going to sure you do. I'm not sure you're going to do any better on the second round than on the first. Move on. Well, let me ask do you. Do other this. things. What yeah. about what about what? I mean, you as a conservative. What about the idea of fixing? Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare's problems are not going to go away. You can you can say later. Wow, we, we later. Well, just do nothing right now. Uh, yeah. What did Ed Koch say? The people voted against me, so they must be punished, right? I mean, um, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to punish the people, but there maybe is some. Maybe the only way. Maybe the only way to get this done is for people to see. Oh my gosh! Look what this Dagon proposal means. You know, uh-huh. you saw the latest thing, and what what state is going to have no options? You know, because yes. uh, Tennessee, some, I think it Tennessee, like, uh, right, 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 zero, yeah, zero options. So I, maybe you know, and that was the thought of Trump's. Maybe so. Well, I mean, if you if you if you write a bill, and you know, the first words of it are the you know the Affordable Care Act, public law, blank blank blank, is hereby repealed. I mean, you're not going to get Democrats. You're not going to get them, but. A lot of Democrats know how much trouble there is. About in a year. Well, maybe so. This this could be yeah, the, the, the collapse and replace uh, strategy. Yep, is, collapse and replace. It's risky. <laughs> All right, risky I have one last thing for there. you. Yes. No more 11 things to remember about. <laughs> I mean, when you go one more than the Ten Commandments, really. Well, see, I, look, I thought 10 was not enough, but 12 would be too many. 12 and, does, and a baker's dozen okay. would be way too many. You know, I read I read it religiously. You know, I have to tell you something. Uh, it started out as ten, and then I Did finished it, it yeah. and I thought of one more. <laughs> well, Byron, you always have another idea. You always have another thought, for which we are grateful. All right, I'm going to buy you lunch. Okay. Let's do it very soon, Bill. Oh, give me one name. I mean, I'm uh, I'm thinking Ricky Fowler because he was so kind to Claude's oh. uh, little boy. But what about Ricky uh, Fowler? No, it's like I twenty think, to I one think, or something. I, I well, I think your your strongest bet is Dustin. 
All right, but give me um, one in the in the that that you could you know if you bet ten dollars you could actually make some money. At oh, 21. let's see here. I gosh, let's I got go. to look at the field. All right, Chris, uh, this is called dead air dollars. time, but but we have loyalists. No, I don't think, we can I don't edit think Ricky it. Ricky is going to do it. Okay. Um, can't give you one. Just I remember, don't, I don't like these dark horse things. Just remember, if you had bet the Patriots at halftime to win the Super Bowl. Your odds yes. were like twenty six to one. Yeah, really. Yeah, you know, some guy, a famous story some guy put down a hundred thousand dollars. One two point six. There's a famous million. story in golf in which Rory McIlroy's father bet a lot of money. You know, you can get British bookies to give you odds on anything. Sure. His, his son is ten years old, and he says, "I'm I want to bet, and my son will win the British Open by the time he is twenty five years old." Oh my god! They gosh. call it the Open yeah. Championship. He yeah. did it. He did it, and the son did it, and much money was made. Wow. Was it Rory McIlroy who shot up the clubhouse a couple of years ago? Was hitting balls all over the place, did like a nine-bogey? Nine uh, yeah, he, he had a couple of bad... Uh, a had a wild day. Nine. It was at Masters, wasn't it? Was it the Masters? Yeah, it was all over the place. Yeah. I, I shocked people last night and told them I was invited to come to the cabin a few years ago and never did. Are you serious? You were? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm shocked too now. Yeah. Now you think less you, of You me. probably should do that. Whose cabin is it? Bootner? Oh, Butler cabin. Whose cabin yeah. is it? Bootner. <laughs> Byron. Well, actually, the, the Byron's is, cabin. The Masters is famous. They have the world's stiffest and most boring um, award ceremony at the oh end my gosh. Oh, where gosh. they have it in this cabin and they have that they make the chairman of the of the club who is not a television personality sits there and yeah. exchanges strained small talk with the person who's just won the masters and just wants to yeah. jump up and down and, and pour champagne on himself um, and they have to engage in this strain small talk for like three minutes. It's the most excruciating three minutes in golf. It's the only event that makes me think I may want to be a one percenter or a whatever you call what were those kids in Wall Street? I think you need to be about the one one tenth of one percent to That's uh, it. to get there. Um, now, who are the kids? Although, what were the Wall Street kids? What were their names? The kids who protested. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, the Occupy Wall Street. Occupy I mean, when you see those guys and they're stupid green jackets and they're just so full of themselves and i mean i know a guy who says you know he lives in augusta and it's not every time you talk to him it's not 10 seconds before he tells you brings up the masters and tells you you know it's the highlight of his year and you know what he does rents out his house in his garage and leaves (laughs) for a large amount of money i hope i guess i guess i hope all right ricky fowler it is i'm going with ricky thank you byron Thank you, Bill. Always enjoy it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Our featured guest today is Tom Jocelyn. Tom's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he's the senior editor of Long War Journal, and he is our go-to guy on terrorism and terrorists. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. I want to focus on the Middle East, the president's meeting with President Sisi and and other things. But we have been covering a lot on uh, this podcast about North Korea. Uh, I just wonder if you have any comment. You know know something about long wars and short wars. Just curious what your thoughts are. Well, on North Korea, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that we shouldn't be um, making 
numerous concessions to them as we have in the past to try and bribe them out of the nuclear program that the regime has committed itself to. And I think the flaw in the past was that if we just, in American thinking under both the Bush and the Obama administrations, was that if we just sweeten the deal enough, we can change their calculation on this. And I think it's proven now that you can't change your calculation on this and that this is a, you know, a menace that is going to threaten us in the near term. Tom, North Korea, we've issued warnings and now we've said everything's on the table. I guess my question is, do you think President Trump will act? What do you think he might do? You know, I, I don't know at this point. I'm not sure what the the policy thinking is inside in terms of trying to game out North Korean behavior and how to um, actually change it and how to actually respond to it in a way that, that makes sense. I'm, I'm really not sure. I think, you know, the, the truth of the matter is this is yet another sort of bipartisan foreign policy failure going across many years that the Trump administration now inherits. So they're left with this incredibly thorny issue that there's been very little good thinking or good policy making on for many years. And that's one of the things that gives somebody like me a lot of concern, especially with the new administration sort of in flux in terms of what its foreign policy agenda is going to be and how they're going to think about the world. You know, basically the world doesn't give you a lot of time to figure it out. And this is a very complex problem that needs to be figured out. Yeah, I mean, you do know something about the mind of terrorists, therefore the mind of some lunatics. This looks like a lunatic with big weapons. I mean, I, you know, what do you do? Yeah, I, mean, I just think that the flaw in the thinking is that, you know, that, that humans are inherently rational and that right. just right. change the calculation, uh, the cost-benefit analysis in dictator's mind, and therefore that will necessarily influence his behavior. And that's simply not the case. I mean, in some cases that may work, but in this case, in North Korea, it has not worked. There have been Absolutely. multiple attempts to bribe them, and it just hasn't worked. Right. Okay. Yeah, this is no rational mind. Let's talk about uh, President Trump's recent meeting with uh, the Egyptian president, el-Sisi. What do you make of it? What do you think of the Trump administration's approach compared to Obama's? Well, you know, I think Egypt is another, you know, thorny problem in, in a number of ways. I mean, I think CC is is committed to fighting the jihadists and Islamists inside Egypt, of course, and I think um, obviously that's a that's a good thing from our perspective, which or at least should be. I mean, I think there's some people in the foreign policy establishment who are effectively pro-Islamist, pro-Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and ignore all the nasty things the Muslim Brotherhood did as it was attempting to rise to power and to consolidate its power inside Egypt. Um, you know, under the president of, of uh, you know, under Morsi's presidency you had them effectively cutting deals with the al-Qaeda jihadis in the Sinai and elsewhere um, that were very lucrative. In fact, the head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, recently issued an audio in which he described why he was, quote-unquote, so lenient on Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood during their time in power. And basically his argument was, hey, look, they were letting us do what we wanted to do. You know, um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's a real issue there that I think is not addressed fully in a lot of the conversations about Egypt. Now, on the flip side, of course, CC um, suppresses all dissent, not just Islamist jihadist dissent. Um, he's not a- allowing for an effective civil society to sort of grow underneath him. Um, I think that's the main concern. I think there's a lot of legitimate concerns there. Um, the question from our perspective as American policymakers is, no, however, not to try and put our own sort of ideological views of the world ahead of that right, and say, right. you know, CC basically is a bad guy and he's a dictator, so therefore he must go without any sort of thinking about what comes after it. You know, and I think too much of the foreign policy thinking, you know, both in terms of internationalists on the right and the left has been sort of 
papering over those day after sort of concerns and just advocating for CC to step aside or, you know, some other sort of major revolution yeah. in the Egyptian regime, which I don't think is going to happen. Right. And we don't want that to happen, right? I mean, we don't want CC to step aside, balancing both sides of what you just said. I mean, I, th- I think the problem is that you- you're constrained by reality, you know, and this is, yeah. you know, Bill, I-, I talk about this a little bit and I sort of joke about this, but you know, there's a foreign policy thinking on both the right and the left. I think it's very naive. There's some real naivete in terms of looking at the world. And this isn't to say that I'm blessing everything that CC does or I'm endorsing everything CC does. But, you know, look, we are constrained by reality here. The idea that America is going to be able to remake Egypt or Egypt is going to be able to remake itself in some peaceful, orderly process that is beneficial and a boon to everybody throughout the region of the world and to American interests I think is a pie-in-the-sky type of assumption. But that is the implicit assumption for the people who just make yes. CC the object of their sort of uh, you know disagreements and of their policymaking, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I remember the Arab Spring and all that was associated with it. You just said Boone. I was thinking Pat Boone, April Love. I mean, that was kind of the music to it. All would be wonderful. All would be flowers in spring. Well, you know, you know, Bill, one of the things we've dealt with in the Arab Spring, and Mike Morell actually talks about this in his book, so there were very few of us um, in the counterterrorism world, and I mean very few, I can count on one hand the number of people who were saying this, that did not go along with the Obama administration's argument that the Arab Spring was the end of jihadism. You know, this is how right. completely rotten right. some of the thinking is. You know, in 2011, 2012 even, you would have people, you know, firmly advocating the idea that the Arab Spring, these uprisings, meant the end of al-Qaeda-style jihadism. And not only did of course, al-Qaeda blossomed during the Arab Spring, but then an even a more virulent form of jihadism in the form of ISIS arose out of al-Qaeda, um, broke off from al-Qaeda, and became its own international menace. And so the actual reality, again, was exactly the opposite of these foreign policy assumptions that were made about the region. I think, again, this, you know, I look at these examples, and to me, I think we have a major problem in terms of bipartisan foreign policy thinking. I think it's pretty much rotten, and I think that people are not really paying attention to reality. Well, I wish they listened more to you. Uh, I know our audience appreciates you. We're talking to Tom Jocelyn, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Senior Editor of Long War Journal. Um, another meeting, uh, the President, right on the heels of uh, Sisi, is uh, the King of Jordan. Uh, what about that? Well, I mean, the King of Jordan is, of course, um, a valuable ally in the fight against jihadists and both ISIS and formerly al-Qaeda, of course, too. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that Jordan and security services do that are on, on the right side of this fight and a big help to us. You know, I've expressed some concerns, as, as some of my colleagues have as well, that sort of Jordan has allowed some al-Qaeda actors to be a little bit more permissive in the last couple of years because they see them as a hedge against ISIS. And this, including one of the top pro-al-Qaeda clerics, on the planet, a guy named Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi. And I think this is a big mistake, because basically what they're saying is that, you know, hey, listen to, listen to this al-Qaeda guy, you know, he, he's got it right, and ISIS has got it wrong. And I, I think we should make the anti-ISIS argument without <laughs> referencing al-Qaeda, you know. Okay. Uh, that okay. doesn't make much sense. But, but, but be that as it may, Bill, you know, there's no question that Jordan is a, a valuable partner to the U.S. and the GID there and everything that's going on. I mean, there's no question that the Jordanian government is a, is a, a very staunch ally of the U.S. in this fight. I want to try to squeeze in three more questions. Um, Mosul, we've been hearing about Mosul and the battle for Mosul for a long time. Uh, are we really prevailing there? It seems to be going on very long. And is it important to prevail there? Well, it's definitely important to prevail there. Um, but the means by which you prevail there is important. I mean, part of the city 
much of the city is being left in ruins, of course. Um, and with with that being said, we're not seeing a swift victory over ISIS. So it seems like we have the worst of all worlds here with a slow grind in Mosul in which, you know, ISIS is, part of ISIS is fighting to the death, but probably part of it is slithered away. Um, and it's basically not leaving much behind in terms of a civil society in Mosul whatsoever to start rebuilding um, once the inevitable fall comes. And this has been going on for many months now, of course, trying to retake Mosul. And, you know, I, I just look back at sort of history and sort of the history of military campaigns, and I don't consider myself a military expert by any means, but it seems to me this is taking an awful long time for us yeah. With right. a superior military right. force that right. we have to, to to eject them from the city. Yeah, I was hoping we'd see more and quicker with this uh, with this team, uh, but we'll see. Uh, now, uh, the news, of course, today over this week has been about Syria chemical attacks. Apparently, uh, what's to be done? Obama drew a red line and avoided it. Do you think Trump will do anything? Um, you know, I don't know. Syria is another thorny issue, of course. I mean, I think. Um, you know, Assad is not a, somebody who's a viable partner for the U.S. in various ways in Syria. Um, I don't think we should excuse his war crimes. I think he should be tried internationally and basically hung from the gallows. Uh, I think, you know, probably the top 20 officials will say, I'm using a guesstimate of his regime, should fa- suffer the same fate. These are mass murderers on a scale that, uh, you know, is very tough to stomach in 2017. But, of course, this is the brutality of human nature. Um, by the same token, I'm a little hesitant about some of what I call, again, some naive policy ideas that I've seen about Syria. So there are a lot of people who have been trying to whitewash the so-called opposition to Assad and basically saying, let's just back the opposition to Assad, the rebels, and not worry about it because this is really the, the most important thing for us. But as we've documented extensively, and I mean in very granular detail, Bill, uh, you know, the rebels are, are riddled with jihadis and al-Qaeda. Right. Al-Qaeda is one of yep. the big players in the rebellion there. And there are all sorts of elaborate attempts to basically whitewash that fact set. There are all sorts of elaborate attempts, by the way, to now say they're not really al-Qaeda anymore, uh, which is part of al-Qaeda's strategy. They know if they change their name that a lot of people in the West will be gullible and go along with it. Um, so, I, again, this is a, a thorny policy issue, but I think, you know, you can stand on your moral principle against Assad and say, look, this is a guy who sort of has to go because you can't leave a mass murderer like this in charge. But if, you, if your answer is we want to just back the opposition and sort of not really pay attention to what's going on there on the ground, and that's really how we're going to get Assad, well, I think that's kind of stupid and is not really paying attention to what the reality is. It's a mess, that's for sure. Let's uh, go one last thing. One very interesting column, unusual column, um, the Trump laptop ban. What may be behind the Trump laptop ban about which everybody made such a fuss? Well, you know, the Trump laptop ban, I think if you look at the last couple of years, part of what al-Qaeda has been doing, in particular al-Qaeda, and ISIS may be experimenting along these lines too, is devising sort of more sophisticated explosives that are disguised to look like laptops iPads, that sort of thing that they could smuggle into the cabin of a plane and then have somebody detonate and bring down the plane. And in February of last year, or early 2016, um, Al-Qaeda in Somalia actually was experimenting with one of these things. And they got a laptop onto a plane and blew a hole in it. They fortunately didn't kill anybody and didn't bring down the airliner. But it was a sort of a test run or an experiment of this sort of thing. And this has been bubbling up in the threat streams that the Trump administration inherited, where they now have them experimenting with this type of explosive across uh, several different countries. And the question really becomes, how do you stop them from getting 
some of these bombs onto planes filled with Americans or bound for America, which is basically what Al-Qaeda wants to do. And, you know, here's the thing about all this. It's very interesting. This is, this is what, passengers on, on planes from 10 cities, is that right? 10 airports throughout the Middle East and North Africa think, can't bring I laptops? I 10 airports. I'd have to check okay. it. I haven't looked okay. at it. I think okay. it's 10 airports. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you look back through time, Bill, so going back all the way to 1994, terrorists within al-Qaeda's orbit have been experimenting with different ways to bring down planes, and they had this liquid bomb that they blew a hole in a Japanese airliner in December of 1994 and killed one of the passengers. That was sort of a test run for an early version of this plot. And to give you an understanding of how long al-Qaeda sort of holds on to these ideas, here we are in 2017, they're still experimenting with sort of the son or grandson of this original plot. Now, what, you know, one of the things I talk about in my conversations with counterterrorism officials and in testimony and other things is that you know, it's been a while since al-Qaeda is taking a shot at us. And the assumption that you'll hear some people make is that that means that they're incapable of doing so or that basically they've been defeated. Um, that is not accurate at all. If they do take a shot at us, they may not succeed. They may fail. In fact, there are many re- ways they could fail. But they've made a calculation, and the way I frame it is this way. So back during the Cold War, the KGB had a saying that the world was going their way as they were t- gaining all this ground throughout the Third World. That's how al-Qaeda has looked at the world, especially since 2011 with the Arab Spring, the Arab uprisings. The world has been going their way, even with the rise of ISIS, which challenged them and which almost really you know, killed off al-Qaeda in Syria and other places. I mean, this was a major, major problem for al-Qaeda and still is in some ways. But al-Qaeda has still, looking at the whole board, has still grown tremendously and has, has adjusted, you know, has basically shifted tactics midstream and so decided to stand Didn't down and not basically take a shot at us. Yeah, didn't know that. Man, it gets it gets more and more complicated. We're nowhere near solving this. Do you just overall have more confidence in this administration to address what it talked about in the campaign, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, the problem of, uh, of uh, Islamic terrorism than in the last crowd? Well, I'll say this. I was a very big critic of the last crowd because they were very ideologically committed to try and explain away what was going on. And I think if you go back through President Obama's remarks on this, even back to before he became president and then throughout his entire presidency, you know, it's sort of a, a graveyard of false predictions and completely erroneous claims. Everything from ISIS is the JV to Al-Qaeda is decimated. You can just, there's a whole catalog you now have of what Obama said that was just wrong. And of course, they wanted to strip the ideological dimension of the fight out of this almost entirely. They wanted to pretend like they didn't really matter. Um, I think there's a more of a sense of reality for the new Trump administration officials about That's this good. And, and not trying to explain everything away. But but the the devil's in the details, Bill. You know, these are all – I understand. Look at what we just talked about. I mean, these are all complex issues. I'm the nerd who studies this stuff constantly, and I'm not going to tell you I have the answer to every one of these countries. No way, you know. So it's really about trying to figure out – what the best way to approach this is from an American perspective to try and limit the damage to American interests and to try and hopefully start winning some of these fights. All right. I'll concede that you're the nerd who does it, sort of. You're no nerd, but but I will not concede you don't have the answers. I if don't anybody know, does, if, you me, if, anybody, if you watch me every day, you would know I was a nerd. So if anybody, <laughs> we, we listen to you every day. We read you every day. Tom Jocelyn, thank you very, very much. Really you, appreciate Bill. it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. Our next guest is Steve Wynn. He's the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Now, for years, Steve has supported both Republicans and Democrats, but something happened during Barack Obama's presidency that moved him to the Republican side. 
In this segment, Steve recounts the most revealing moment of Obama's presidency and why it eventually led to the downfall of the Democrat Party and Donald Trump's victory. Here's Steve. I'll never forget the day that I saw this. And if people are listening to me on your program, or Republicans, or if they're Democrats, I want to remind them of this spectacularly illuminating moment that took place in 09. It was a press conference. The Affordable Care Act was on the threshold of achievement. And the president was asked on national television, Mr. President, President Clinton was elected with a majority, became president in 1992 with a majority in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Mrs. Clinton began the program of what became known as Hillary Care, which was the type of uh, uh, socialistic overtaking over of health care that the Affordable Care Act is being compared to. And then President Clinton lost his majority in the House and Senate and had to deal with Mr. Gingrich and company for the balance of his time as president. Are you not concerned that because of this health care bill that you're sponsoring, that the same thing could happen to you in the midterm elections of 2010, which are a year or so away? And Barack Obama looked at the camera and said, well, there's a big difference between the Democratic Party in that situation in 1994 and now. And the reporter, led properly to the next question, said, what is that difference, Mr. President? And I watched it with my two eyes. And Barack Obama looked at the camera and said, in 1994, the Democratic Party didn't have me. Me. That, that level of arrogance. Yeah. I don't care who you are. I don't care how hot you may think you are. I don't care how much money you've made or how many Super Bowls you've won or how many elections you've won. No human being who's healthy should ever have that kind of arrogance. No, you are, you are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. Narcissism, I think, is what it, uh, it's, it, it is. What it, it is, is narcissism it? and arrogance that is very troubling because a person who's capable of saying those words is the kind of a person that will make a deal to take five terrorists, leading terrorists, and turn them over for a deserter in the Gitmo deal. A man with that kind of arrogance is capable of appointing someone to the IRS to super supervise the tax collection and, uh, and be active in a senior management area of collecting the taxes from Americans who, when questioned about a criminal event, a government officer takes the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. Those kind of things are the first time I ever saw anything like that in government. Yeah. Maybe I'm too old to be disillusioned, but apparently not. Let's talk about uh, about President Trump. I imagine, first of all, just by way of transition. fun to say it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Been a friend of mine for 32 years. President Trump, I'm getting used to. I know. To it's it. still, I sometimes wake up and think, oh my gosh, he won. Holy smokes. I talked to you that night. I remember. I remember what you said, too. Um, when you talk to the people that you call and you were reciting some of the places and people before we went on air uh, do they vet do they say now here's what you need to tell donald trump or, all the time all the time right yeah and i quickly remind everybody that i don't get to tell the president yes. anything yeah good yeah yeah no i mean if he wants a nickel out of me he better 
No, 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 no. No, they don't talk like that. Well, first of all, I, I'm on the I'm on the stump here because of personal reasons to try and preserve a Senate that's Republican yep. and a House that's Republican yep. with the with the hope and the prayer that they do the right thing in making a better life for more Americans and dealing with problems that are screaming for solutions at the moment. I'm ho- that's why I'm out there. But I don't get to tell the President of the United States anything. And what I, what I hope is that that wonderful cabinet that he's yes, sir. assembled, yes, sir. Rex Tillerson, Wilbur Ross, General Mattis, not to mention the rest of these men and women are really fine people. Betsy DeVos and I sat on the board of the trustees of the Kennedy Center together. Yeah. Mrs. DeVos is a, and her, and her husband, that whole family, Dick, yeah. dedicated to a better life for children in the schools of Michigan and anywhere else. Now Betsy's ability to make a better education for kids will be expanded, hopefully, in her role as Secretary of Education. I'm staying in close touch with her. I, I've talked to her a couple times already and met with her and just trying to, you know, offer my help and guidance to the degree that I can be used That's what we her. do. Guys like us. Yeah. We, we help if we can. If we can. And sometimes... Call me if you need me, you know? But <laughs> I, I'm not going to bug you, right? I'm not gonna, she's got a lot to do. I might bug someone under certain circumstances. You know? Yeah, sure, yeah. Well, you get, yeah, your calls get returned, I know. Uh, so far. Yeah. <laughs> Over the next few weeks, the president, President Trump, say it again, is going to have to make some of the biggest deals of his life, you know, the art of the deal. You've uh, mentioned a couple of these things already, but uh, he has to unite the party on repealing and replacing Obamacare. We're in the midst of that now. Pass tax reform possible greater military action in Syria. Um, he's meeting with the president of China here coming up. You know Donald Trump better than uh, almost anyone else. Uh, can he do this? Can he pull this off? He's working hard, that's for sure. I mean, even critics say the guy is working. He's, a, he's, he, he's working every day of the week, whether he's in Florida or Washington. I, I'm going uh, to respond to that in a way that I think is relevant. We know that in spite of all of the bells and whistles, presidential power, we have learned throughout our American history, is, even under the best of circumstances, still limited by our Constitution. And a president, if he doesn't have the kind of support from the people that is represented by the House of Representatives and the Senate, that his reach, his ability to make significant changes to our society, to make significant, to present and execute significant solutions to these problems, cannot be done on executive power alone. And so we take a look at the landscape that, that Donald J. Trump faces today. And the answer to the question about Don, Donald Trump's dealing ability is less at issue than a bigger question. We know about partisanship now, and we know that the, the grasping for power, the, the unrelenting energy to hold power at any cost, seems to be the dominant theme in Washington. So, understanding that the House of Representatives and the Senate represent the people's voice at any given moment, 
who's ever in charge has managed to capture more neighborhoods and counties and, and states and cities than anyone else. And at the moment, that's Republicans in the House and the Senate. The argument is that, for example, in health care, that uh, we got to do it all at once, that you got to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But then the politicians who know about the Senate rules say, well, we have to do it in steps. We can't really do the positive things that lower health care costs. We can scratch the Affordable Health Care Act with 51 votes with reconciliation, getting into the weeds of the Senate rules. But we can't really pass the kinds of things that will lower health costs and solve the problems in taxation and health care unless we have a 60-vote majority. I believe the time has come to recognize that the Republican Party, if it does not accomplish the people's wishes and come up with concrete solutions before the midterms, have a very good chance of losing the Senate or, the, or, the, or a grip on the House the way the Democrats did twice before in recent history with Clinton and Obama. All right, we have to leave it there for today, Steve. Thank you. That's the show, folks. Until next time, this has been The Bill Bennett Show, my brand new free podcast. If you haven't already, go to iTunes and subscribe.